Chapter Seven of Monsieur Le Coq, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Monsieur Le Coq by Emilie Gaboureau, Part Two, Chapter Seven. The demonstrations which had greeted the Duc de Sermuse had been correctly reported by Chenluinot. Chupin had found the secret of kindling to a white heat the enthusiasm of the cold and calculating peasants who were his neighbours. He was a dangerous rascal, the old robber, shrewd and cautious, bold, as those who possess nothing can afford to be as patient as a savage, in short, one of the most consummate scoundrels that ever existed. The peasants feared him, and yet they had no conception of his real character. All his resources of mind had, until now, been expended in evading the precipice of the rural code. To save himself from falling into the hands of the gendarmes, and to steal a few sacks of wheat, he had expended treasures of intrigue which would have made the fortunes of twenty diplomats. Circumstances, as he always said, had been against him. So he desperately caught at the first and only opportunity worthy of his talent which had ever presented itself. Of course, the wily rustic had said nothing of the true circumstances which attended the restoration of Sermus to its former owner. From him the peasants learn only the bare fact, and the news spread rapidly from group to group. Monsieur Le Chenot has given up Sermus, said he. Chateau, forests, vineyards, fields. He surrenders everything. This was enough, and more than enough to terrify every landowner in the village. If La Chenot this man, who was so powerful in their eyes, considered the danger so threatening that he deemed it necessary or advisable to make a complete surrender. What was to become of them, poor devils, without aid, without counsel, without defence? They were told that the government was about to betray their interests, that a decree was in process of preparation which would render their title-deeds worthless. They could see no hope of salvation, except through the Duke's generosity, the generosity which Chupin painted with the glowing colours of the rainbow. When one is not strong enough to weather the gale, one must bow like a reed before it, and rise again after the storm has passed. Such was their conclusion. And they bowed, and their apparent enthusiasm was all the more vociferous on account of the rage and fear that filled their hearts. A close observer would have detected an undercurrent of anger and menace in their shouts. Each man also said to himself, What do we risk by crying, Vive le Duc? Nothing, absolutely nothing, if he is contented with that as a compensation for his lost property. Good, if he is not content, we shall have time afterward to adopt other measures. So they shouted themselves hoarse. 
and while the duke was sipping his coffee in the little drawing-room of the presbytery he expressed his lively satisfaction at the scene without he this grand seigneur of times gone by this man of absurd prejudice and obstinate illusions the unconquerable and the incorrigible he took these acclamations truly spurious coin as chateaubriand says for ready money how you have deceived me cure he was saying to abmedon how could you declare that your people were unfavourably disposed towards us one is compelled to believe that these evil intentions exist only in your mind and in your own heart abmedon was silent what could he reply he could not understand this sudden revolution in public opinion this abrupt change from gloom and discontent to excessive gaiety there is somebody at the bottom of all this he thought it was not long before it became apparent who that somebody was emboldened by his success without chupin ventured to present himself at the presbytery he entered the drawing-room with his back rounded in a circle scraping and cringing an obsequious smile upon his lips and through the half-open door one could discern in the shadows of the passage the far from reassuring faces of his two sons he came as an ambassador he declared after an interminable litany of protestations he came to implore monseigneur to show himself upon the public square ah well yes exclaimed the duke rising yes i will yield to the wishes of these good people follow me marquise as he appeared at the door of the presbytery a loud shout rent to the air the rifles were discharged the guns belched forth their smoke and fire never had sermuse heard such a salvo of artillery three windows of the bouffe corne were shattered a veritable grand seigneur the duc de sermuse knew how to preserve an appearance of haughtiness and indifference any display of emotion was in his opinion vulgar but in reality he was delighted charmed so delighted that he desired to reward his welcomers a glance over the deeds handed him by lacheneur had showed him that sermuse had been restored to him intact the portions of the immense domain which had been detached and sold separately were of relatively minor importance the duke thought it would be politic and at the same time inexpensive to abandon all claim to these few acres which were now shared by forty or fifty peasants my friends he exclaimed in a loud voice i renounce for myself and for my descendants all claim to the land belonging to my house which you have purchased they are yours i give them to you by this absurd pretence of a gift monsieur de sermeuse thought to add the finishing touch to his popularity a great mistake it simply assured the popularity of chupin the organizer of the farce and while the duke was promenading through the crowd with a proud and self-satisfied air the peasants were secretly laughing and jeering at him 
and if they promptly took sides with him against Jean Louisneau, it was only because his gift was still fresh in their mind, except for this. But the Duke had not time to think much about this encounter, which produced a vivid impression upon his son. One of his former companions in exile, the Marquise de Courtornieu, whom he had informed of his arrival, hastened to welcome him, accompanied by his daughter, Mademoiselle Blanche. Marshal could do no less than offer his arm to the daughter of his father's friend, and they took a leisurely promenade in the shade of the lofty trees, while the Duke renewed his acquaintance with all the nobility of the neighbourhood. There was not a single nobleman who did not hasten to press the hand of the Duke de Sermus. First, he possessed, it was said, a property of more than twenty millions in England. Then, he was the friend of the king, and each neighbour had some favour to ask for himself, for his relatives, or for his friends. Poor king! He should have had entire France to divide like a cake between these comrades, whose voracious appetites it was impossible to satisfy. That evening, after a grand banquet at the Chateau de Courtenorieux, the duke slept in the Chateau de Sermus, in the room which had been occupied by La Chaigneur. Like Louis the Eighteenth, he laughingly said, in the chamber of Bonaparte. He was gay, chatty, and full of confidence in the future. It is good to be in one's own house, he remarked to his son, again and again. But Marshall responded only mechanically. His mind was occupied with thoughts of two women who had made a profound impression upon his by no means susceptible heart that day. He was thinking of those two young girls so utterly unlike. Blanche de Courtenay, Marianne Lacheneur. End of chapter 7 Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway the 29th of October, 2011.